is a radio show with a bloke that you know. Our rowing correspondent last week went to the Edinburgh Tattoo. He's also a vet correspondent, but he could be our bagpipe correspondent because he's big on it. This was Mark last week. It's been an incredible experience to come back, and the whole show is amazing. It's come so far. The quality of the musicianship here is the brass bands and the Americans and the Norwegians and the Swiss and the Brits, and, and then the piping's great. We sort of start and end the show. And then in between, they have the military music with the marching, and they're marching with, you know, big instruments and complex movements, and it's, it's just beautiful. And singing and a couple of good songs to finish the show, and the crowd's just, they've been, it's been sold out every night. There's electric bagpipes and all sorts of stuff. And I should say, Scott Albury won the World Championship in 4B. Um, we played in 4B, didn't quite make the final, got uh, got robbed by a nasty judge, but, you know, got <laughs> That'll happen. <laughs> That'll happen. <laughs> but uh, Albury, Scott Albury... Unbelievable musicians, a mix of students and you know, ex-students and teachers, and they were just superb. They got so many good musicians in that band. There's a young guy who plays drums, and he's going to the Melbourne Con for jazz next year. And they, one of the young guys just uh, won the juvenile under 18 over here, which is an incredibly hard thing to do. Mark Campbell, ladies and gentlemen, is our rowing correspondent. He's also a vet. Have you noticed? Uh, what, how's the animal life in Edinburgh and Scotland? Have you noticed oh, dogs yeah, and great. cats and stuff? Oh, and... I've been patting every second dog that goes past. You know, it's like when you're away from them. <laughs> So it's, it's really great. They're not quite as used to people patting their dogs, but once they once you sort of get into it, they they, they love you, you know. And it's great for the dogs. I think have, I think that's you know, because the dogs think you might start playing the bagpipes and it'll scare them. And they run away. So they... <laughs> you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand. <laughs> I love this it. vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Mac. <laughs> Get on with it, Macca. That was Mark last week. They got robbed by a nasty judge. I feel like saying, Mark, get used to it. Get over it. That's life, isn't it? Nasty judges. Whether it's a baby competition or whatever, the judge will do you in every time. <laughs> 1300 700 that's our number, macatracks at com. You may have missed Tommy from Ebor last week. Yeah, Maka, how you going, mate? I was just putting it out there. You should come to Ebor, New England high country, and do an outside broadcast. It'll be a big boost for the little town. You could set up in the showground, I reckon, and when you're finished, I could even take you trout fishing, guaranteed to catch a rainbow trout. It can get cold in Ebor. Everyone says it's been a cold winter, but it's not as cold as last winter. Last winter was freezing, and this winter up here has been pretty mild. There was one morning where it was minus 3, and it felt like minus 7.2 or something, but <laughs> uh, overall it's been pretty mild. I'm in uh, my motorhome. I'm parked in the shed on a cattle property. You might be there if we go to Ebor. More or less pretty stationary. I'm building cattle yards at the moment, a lot of welding. Keep pretty busy. The grass is just starting to grow. Might jump on the mower today and cut a bit of grass. Might even have a shave. Well, that'd be good. That sounds like a, a good life. Tomo, how long have you been on the road? I worked on North Stradbroke Island when the sand mine shut down. I yeah, bought the motorhome, went over to WA and worked in the mines for about six months. Come back here and went out to Lightning Ridge and I stopped at Ebor on the way to Lightning Ridge and stayed at behind the pub. There's a bit of a caravan park behind the pub. I put myself on grey nomads and the next morning I had 28 hits on grey nomads and the first one that was there was the place that I'm at now. I rang up and he said, can you mow lawns? And I said, yeah, I can, sir. I've been here ever since, putting hay out for the cattle and just doing odd jobs and, yeah, it's been great. That's Tomo and that's what Tomo does. And Tomo is pretty spot on and my mate Michael, Michael O'Sullivan, said the same thing the other day and the bureau's just come out and said... The warmest winter ever, the last winter we've had. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Dr Michael Fairley about online things, especially for young adults with an intellectual disability. And if you've got any queries, you can go to Online Safety Interaction or Interaction Safety Online, try that. But this is what Michael Fairley had to say. Parents were commenting that their children you know, were buying 100 arrows for their game using their parents' credit card or, you know, their daughters were persuaded to show pictures of their bottom on the, to strangers on the internet. Quite often children would go into their bedroom perfectly happy and come out a couple of hours later completely shattered. 
and this was happening. It happens about twice as often for people with disabilities as for average kids. And in looking round for resources, which are mostly online, of course, there's some really good things. The eSafety Commission has got wonderful websites, but the resources for adults are full of writing and and a bit complicated for people with disabilities. Sites for children, you know, if you're a a young person or adolescent, you you don't want to be looking at kids' sites. They're, They're a bit demeaning. There was a gap. There was just nothing specifically for people of this age. It was decided with the help of the eSafety Commissioner, a grant, to set up a specific program for young people with disabilities. Look up your browser and go to online safety interaction or interaction online safety and you'll find... It explained something to me that I hadn't really put together. It's not in cyberbullying. It's not just the pile-on. It's not just when people are nasty to you. But a big part of it is exclusion. You know, when people are shunned. You know, you ask around what's happening on the weekend. No one tells you anything. And the next thing you look on social media and everyone else has got pictures of themselves enjoying themselves and you've been left out. Important information for all of us, really. Not just for adults with an intellectual disability, but all of us come to grief, I think, on the net. I often go through our back pages. This is a call we had from Jock Schmierson a little while ago. He was on the Drysdale. Kieran Kelly was in the studio. Have a listen. Hey, good morning, Maka. Jock, where are you? Tell me. Mate, I'm sitting on the beautiful wild Drysdale River in the far off Kimberley, looking at the mist just floating across the water. I had an early morning dip, not not a long distance swim like here and goes across Lake Argyle. Get away from the rotten southern winters. But this is a bit poignant here because next year will be 30 years since I first paddled this river with a group of international expeditioners. Uh, on the first ever descent of the Drysdale Rivers. Jock, you're obviously on a sat phone. What sort of a river is the Drysdale River? I mean, we know rivers and rivers in Australia. Is there a lot of water in the Drysdale or can be? I suppose in the wet season there is and in the dry there's not. Is that right? Look, it's one of the biggest rivers in the Kimberley. It's between the King George River and the King Edward River. People know the King George better because of the King George waterfalls. Even now, like, it's been a very uh, low wet this year. The river's still got big reaches of water and pools. We're sitting here by a big pool. We're, we're waiting for a float plane to come and land and pick us up in two hours' time, take us ten minutes down river to our base camp. Then a couple of days we'll pack up and start heading south. So this river still has big, big amounts of water in it all through the year. It never dries up. And, Jock, you're always out there too, aren't you? Well, I've been coming back here now since I... When we first did the river trip in 86, two years later I then drove in and I've been coming back here every year pretty much since 2000. I've been here every year, so I've been basically doing a wilderness escape and doing some research work in the national park, mainly recording the cultural heritage in that of the area, which, of course, all across the Kimberley is very significant and massive amounts, particularly the um, the Aboriginal rock art that's uh, all throughout the Kimberley. Have you seen much of the Bradshaw art, Jock? Well, we've recorded about 500 sites in this area over the last 20 years, and that's only scratching the surface. So, yeah, I've seen quite a lot, and that's one of the first things we saw, and it's, it's, it's called Guion Guion art these days, the Aboriginal name for it. So the old Joe Bradshaw that originally recorded and saw it on one of his early trips into the Kimberley looking for land and whose name was given to it as a bit out of it now. So from Aboriginal viewpoint across the Kimberley, they are the Gwion Gwion and they're the ancestral figures along with the, the more famed Wanjana. Jock, so wonder Kieran hasn't joined you on the Drysdale River at some stage. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't done the Drysdale, have No, you? no, it's a wonderful river that I've been to. It. It's, uh, I think, well, there's so many, I'm, I'm sure Jock would agree, there's so many rivers in Australia that probably haven't been kayak or canoed and uh, they're a wonderful challenge awaiting people, don't you think, Jock? Oh, absolutely. And, and look, when I think back, and I never thought of it this way, when we did this river in 1986, you know, 360 kilometres, six-and-a-half-week trip with uh, 23 people, international expeditions, you think it's pretty rare around the world to be able to go on a river that no white person has ever sort of travelled the length of. Um, and to do that within recent years, because there aren't that many rivers like that left, you know, unless you go into the deep parts of the Amazon or somewhere like that. That's quite amazing. I sometimes wonder 
what happened to those 14 sort of, you know, 20-odd expeditioners. I'd love to contact all of them and find out where they're at today. The weather's been quite cool up here in the Kimberley. We've had very cold nights, but yesterday was probably one of the hottest days we had, and river water's warm, and I think it'll be another warm day. Good on you, Jock. <laughs> See you, guys. My guest this morning is Lynn Silver. Lynn's been all over the world, <clears throat> but but recently... She's been now. Where's that other piece of paper, Kel? She's been um, in Borneo at uh, Katakina Balu. That's it. I said it quickly. No, That's good. Very good. Um, and it says here <clears throat> that you received a prestigious humanitarian award award for Rotary International at a big function in Sabah. Um, and that's your some uh, Sendakan family. That you and you're doing all that stuff for kids with hair lips and cleft palates and all that sort of thing. That must have been a nice function. Were many there? About 350, but this is a a wee project. Quite often it's me who spearheads things over there with memorials, but this time it was my husband, Neil, who um, had the idea that we should do something for these children who've slipped through the cracks. Mm. Um, Malaysians who are born in Malaysia are looked after by the government, but a lot of people uh, go in as immigrant workers, and if they have children who are born there... Um, they don't have any identity. They have no cards. They can't go to school. They have no access to wow. um, medical services. And so there's this extraordinary number of children um, with these unattended to hair lips and cleft palates who have absolutely no future at all, especially girls. Um, they're so disfigured. And when you have a father who's uh, earning 10 Australian dollars a day, there's no way you're going to find the equivalent of 1,500 Australian dollars to um, go on a program that's going to going to fix up your child. So um, that's where we stepped in with our Sandakan family and um, the little idea that Neil had back in about 2014-15 has now blossomed into a quite a large um, project and uh, we have fixed, so far fixed up 65 of these children and they're connected back, of course, to the death march. So as I said before... This is a, a really nice way to turn something that's a horrible, horrible story into something good that's doing doing some good for somebody in the future. And instead of just having a memorial in a park, um, you know, or, or a lump of stone somewhere, um, this is a living memorial that's making huge changes to the recipients of the surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking to Lynn Silver. I'm just trying to find that bit of paper that the lady... Sent me, but it doesn't matter about, about you packing. And, oh, here it is here. Oh, here it is. You gave here. it to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> to look at, which was in 1988, and, <clears throat> and said um, uh, the basic thing about travelling is we took almost no baggage. What did you take? <laughs> we took a. I t- said to the kids, um, you know, we'll we can go on this trip, but you need to carry your own bags because my husband wasn't with us. He was overseas already, so they had to pack everything that fit into an allowable cabin bag and so you just pare it down you have you go a color coordinate um you, you take stuff that's easy to wash you take one lipstick <laughs> instead of two or three um that's only small but uh, and you take two pairs of shoes one good pair one other and you really can do it and it was mm. fantastic because you're not standing that's the whole waiting. the whole drama about flying and i don't fly very much at all although i'm thinking of going to adelaide um for the show this week um, I don't know when to go. Maybe on Friday we'll go to... And I don't know where to go to meet people. Um, maybe we should go to the CW, CWA. Would they have a stall at, in the Adelaide show? I'll see. See Anyway. They but, have scones. Or the wood chopping, yeah. But maybe the CWA is the best place to meet people. Um, but travelling, the worst thing about travelling is all... You see people with these huge bags. Huge bags. Um, but, yeah, travel travelling light is the way to go, isn't it? Oh, it's easy, yeah. yeah. And uh, I said I managed. I was a, you know... I was a bit stronger in those days than I am now, but, you know, I'm quite small. But and I remember when I went to America years ago, you travel with nothing, but you come home with heaps of stuff because everything was manufacturing was when it was made in America. It was cheap, just like it was made in China, except it was better quality, much better quality. But you'd get things like boots and stuff made in America. So you'd buy stuff in America, which were really cheap. Like I bought a, a lovely guitar in America uh, for, you know, a fifth or a sixth of the price it would be. So you usually come home with lots. But, um, yeah, I think that's exactly, if you can travel light, that's the way to go, isn't it? Yep. That's the sure way to go. Uh, g'day, this is Macca.
Oh, good morning, Maka. This is um, Marion from Cairns in North Queensland. Hi, Marion. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. Hi, and hi to your team and everybody else. Thank you. Um, yeah, Maka, I don't know if a lot of people are aware, but the um, Australian junior swimming team, the Dolphins, they're over in Israel um, competing at the moment. Um, they flew out of Australia on the 25th of September and they went to Cyprus for a, a week of training and then on to Tel Aviv. And they're actually um, uh, at a place called Netanya and it's about, a north, uh, about an hour's north of Tel Aviv. And my grandson, Johan Zemanski, he, he'll be competing. But, um, but we never hear about um, the, um, the swimming championships and things like that. No, uh, I suppose so. know, I suppose we're at this time of the year. Of course, we're football mad, and <clears throat> not all of us are football mad, of course. But um, I think the people who run the news think we're football mad, so thereby we get football all the time, um, and that's probably one of the reasons. Um, and the other thing is, I suppose, out of sight, out of mind. It's somewhere else, and yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And something I have noticed that um, there seems to be more coverage for sports um, if the if it involves a ball or wheels, <laughs> you know, golf, <laughs> tennis, soccer, rugby, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, but the, the swimmers, as, as most people would be aware, they um, they work hard, they train hard. They, you know, they're up at four thirty in the morning to get the training. Doesn't matter what the weather's like. Like my grandson, he'd wake my daughter up at five uh, at four thirty every morning to get him to training. You right. know, so um, so how does he go? Does he go good? Uh, he's been doing he's been doing well. He's ranked about ninth in the world for his age group. Wow. Um, he's in the Western Australian team, and then because of his performance um, in Singapore, um, and. Uh, I think that was earlier this year, and also um, the Australian Championships. Um, he's now in the Australian Junior Swimming Team. So um, yeah. All right. So let, let, let's hope they all do well. Exactly. There's an awful lot going on in Israel at the moment, but anyway, the Junior cha- Championships are on there um, at the present time, and uh, uh, they finish about the ninth. Um, right. of um, September and then, yeah, flying back home on the 10th. Well, he could ring us one morning if he wanted to, yeah, any time. You can ring us here from from anywhere. You can probably hear it in Israel. He's probably listening to you right now, Marion. <laughs> no, I, I'd say he'd, if he's not um, um, yeah, um, in the pool. resting, he says he'll be, yeah, he'll be uh, training. Good on you, yeah, Marion. Great sure. to talk to you. Yeah, same here. From Simon, campfires glowing, train whistle blowing, a magical sound in the night. Macro, I tell you, I live where I live, but on Sundays I live where I like. Well said. Thank you, Simon. Uh, g'day, this is Macca. Good morning, Macca. It's Graham Bailey speaking. From um, I'm ringing you from a phone box in Wyandra. Oh, wow. What now, do you, what this do you is do? between Charleville and Kalamala. Yeah, Kalamala. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I called you from this phone box possibly 20-odd years ago. Oh, I remember it well. No, I don't. Because I mean... you, you um, advertised that people here were wanting people to come in and give a call for this little place to help support it. All right. And we came through here. But you may also remember I called you from on the waterfront in Melbourne when Elvis and Isabella, the the helicopters were going out of Melbourne. Oh, that's right, yes. I was down there. your memory. Yes, good, I remember. Uh, actually, I was down there on the wharf one time with uh, one of the Elvis or... Who's the other one? Isabella. Yeah, Yeah. there's Elvis and Isabella. There's a number of them, mm-hmm. but it was just the fact that um, we, we were coming through between um, Kalamala and Charleville, and I thought, I've got to ring him again off this phone, out of this phone box. Why didn't they call it Priscilla, the other... The other helicopter. Oh, there's a number of them. Yeah, but is there a Priscilla? I don't know why they never called the it, but there is a number of those um, choppers that mm. were here for the firefighting. And I rang you from uh, on the wharf when one of it, when Elvis was actually being loaded on the ship. And I also spoke you to you much. when Isabella was Thank actually landing on the waterfront. They flew it in from Essendon Airport. Graham, tell me why you're ringing again from Wyandra 20 years later. Are you just happen to be passing through or you live there? Or? Yeah, no, no, we're passing through, Mecca. Uh-huh. 
we're passing through. We've just been away with um, a number of people from the Four Wheel Drive Club we're members of up to up to uh, Cairns. Mm. Uh, that took a month to come up from Melbourne. It was pretty wet on the way through, and a lot of places we wanted to go to were closed because of the um, the road conditions. And we've just been travelling around, and we're heading home south now. We we want to be back by Wednesday, but I thought. I've got to give this guy a call from Wyander again. <laughs> well, thank you. thank you. What sort of a, a state is the phone box in? Um, it's not too bad, actually. It's not too bad at all. But the little cafe right beside me is closed. Oh, but right. I must say there's a really good um, phone, bo- um, phone box. Sorry, mate. There's a really good little cafe. This I don't know how long it's been open, but it's been a long time since we've been through here. But I just thought I'd jog your memory when you ask people to come through and give a call from here. Well, good on you, Graham. Is there many people in the main street? Of why I assume the phone box is in the main street, is it? Well, <laughs> there's not many people here, mate, I can tell you. <laughs> well, stick around. They'll be there in a minute. They're just getting in the car now. <laughs> All right, mate. Look, good to speak to you again, are you? You too, Graham. Where's home for you? Melbourne. Melbourne. Yep. All right. I've well, actually, you actually called me one morning about... Um, to go into the new uh, building at um, in City Road in in oh, South um, Bank. Melbourne. At South I was Bank. on your last show at the Three LO building. Oh, Three LO. Oh, right. That was in um, uh, Burke Street, Burke yes. corner of Burke and something. Um, uh, yeah, that's a long time ago. It is a long time ago. We're going down to Melbourne again soon, with a bit of luck. Uh, prob- okay. Probably. Yeah, I'll be listening for you. Oh well, come and see. Don't listen. Come. I, and see. I also went to Shepparton to see you as well when you're in Shepparton. Oh, good on you, Graham. Great to love hath no man. Thank you, Graham, yeah. for your call. Cheers, mate. Good Bye. on you, mate. Bye. Uh, the water ladies on the line. Maria Hitchcock. Good morning, Maria. Uh, morning, Ian. How are you? Um, frazzled. Uh, <laughs> Maria, don't laugh. It's it's serious. You should see this place. Um, Maria, uh, tell me the news. I have. <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, I got a letter from the uh, the Prime Minister. As you know, I've been uh, trying to um, uh, initiate a, a new campaign. Um, I thought about the uh, awards, the uh, Order of Australia Awards, and uh, and I thought how the um, the awarding of those um, on the King's birthday probably is a bit of a um, a throwback to the time when the old imperial honours were handed out, mm-hmm. and because the the medals themselves have the wattle on them, um, I, I thought that it might be nice to be able to promote Wattle Day um, by awarding the Australia the Order of Australia awards on that day, and, and you know, and and be great if we could if other people think the same and and they might like to um, uh, help with that. Um, so the I was told that actually it's not done. The timing of the awards is not done by the the government of the day. It's the Governor General's office. So if people want to help and and support um, that particular idea. Then um, they need to just email the uh, the Governor General's office and uh, uh, and and just a, a simple you know sentence saying you support the uh, the change of date for the uh, the awards, but uh, to the first of September from the King's birthday. Um, now the other thing is that uh, what's really great is that the Wattle Day Association has been talking to the government and uh, the Prime Minister's office and they've now agreed to promote Wattle Day uh, and that is brilliant because when I uh, ran that campaign um, and and was told that uh, yes it would be successful and they would gazette National Wattle Day they did say at the time but we don't want to promote it. So this is a big departure. And uh, apparently they're now going to try to get citizenship ceremonies uh, on uh, National Wattle Day uh, all across Australia and also um, encourage uh, the illumination of our landmarks in green and gold. So I think that's a brilliant development. And, uh, and, and thanks to you, Ian, for, you know, your continual promotion. And, and sometimes it's been disappointing because you can't sort of see much happening out there. And, and you think nobody, you know, wants to know that they've all forgotten about it and so on. But they haven't really because there has been a fairly strong grassroots movement going on. 
Yeah, uh, I remember about five years ago I went up to the local school because it's full of beans and um, took up some wattle. Uh, and, of course, they didn't really want to know about it. And, and the, this was a primary school because when we did it, it was primary school, you know, mm. eight, yeah. nine, ten-year, eleven-year-olds and wattle queens, and we know all that. But but the teachers that were there, primary teachers, probably about 25, and they obviously hadn't learned that at school. So I think there was a there was just like a big gap. All of a sudden it fell off the cliff and nobody and, – and, you know, it's only because – I realised from doing this program for many years, and you do too, and a lot of Australians do, that it's it's intricately in in entwined with our history, and uh, just not just as a plant and the animals that hang around it, but it, but the sprigs of wattle and the war and the whole thing. It's just part of our fabric, isn't it? And wattling and all that sort of thing. So, and I just thought that was, that's a shame, but I think that's a great idea if 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 we can, uh, you know, if you have those ceremonies, the um, and people are wearing little sprigs of wattle. I mean, the last Governor-General that really was the one who went, uh, what was his name, Dean, Sir William Dean? Yeah, uh, And yeah. He, he went up, remember he went over to, was it Switzerland where those kids were killed yeah. in the in the thing and they they threw some little wattle sprigs all over the place and wattles yeah. intricately associated with our history. So that's all. I think it's just important for if you forget your history, you've got Alzheimer's. That's what my mate Ray Parkin said years ago, and he was a midshipman on the Perth, but a, a, a lovely drawer and a, just a brilliant bloke, you know. And yeah, and and I, that's what he said, and I've never forgotten that. And I think that's a, a great thing, you know. It's not everything, is it? It's not the be all and end all your history, but it's no. important to just yes recognize. Oh well, this is Wattle, and this goes back a long way. And and people and it's all about national pride mm. and and our green and gold colours. I mean, people do uh, really celebrate pride in Australia through our colours. But a lot of people don't understand that it actually comes from the wattle and uh, yeah, exactly. and it's you know intertwined again with that history that goes back over 130 years. And um, and so uh, yeah, it's really good. And you've got to remember uh, John Howard when he went to the first Bali commemoration. Um, you know, he took a whole lot of wattle with him and people were wearing sprigs of wattle. So it's sort of, it's just one of those things very, that very, are intrinsic. Yeah, very important, Maria. We need, you know, in this crazy world we live in, it's, imp you know, you don't have to boast about anything, but it's just nice to say, oh, well, look, this is us and what we have a wattle day in Australia and that celebrates so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and it's just us, you know, and and it is. and and uh, it's very important. So good on you for all your work because it wouldn't have happened oh, without you. Thank you. you. Um, well, I, I, Lee actually went into the nursery the other day. I said we need to get a picnantha, uh, Kill, um, but they didn't. <laughs> they didn't have one. So <laughs> we'll uh, we'll look around for a picnantha in one of the other um, nurseries. But uh, we're going to plant one because there were there were. Where have I been uh, recently? There was pecnanthas all along the way, wasn't there, Kel? Everywhere. I was pointing them out. North coast and in New South Wales. But, um, yeah, lovely, uh, lovely. But my favourite my favorite wattle at the moment, because that changes, of course. It's like my favourite song. My favourite is the Vestita, um, which, yes. which is a sort of drooping, sort of lovely... Group, yeah, sort of, a weeping, yeah, a weeping wattle. Yeah, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Very long lived. Yeah, very drought hardy. I'd recommend it to anybody. Maria, keep up the good work, um, and uh, you'll get a you'll get a another honour and, and wear some wattle. I'm going to wear wattle on wattle day. I do wear wattle, but nobody else seems to know much about it. But no. No, that's right. And and I gave a talk in Tamworth on Friday and took my little sprigs of wattle along and handed them out. And, and again, you know, most people have that there's been a big gap in our historical knowledge of, uh, you know, all of that sort of, well, can I say patriotic fervour, but it, that, that feeling of national pride that somehow disappeared after a while and, yeah. and we've got to bring it back again. Yeah, but, and it was always, you know, when you're growing up, it wasn't trendy to be Australian, was it? It was trendy to be anything anything but. And and you can be proud of being Australian without being, you know, um, and most Australians are, you know, and your your parents and your grandparents, just ordinary little people, but they were just, I don't know, when you think back about the things they talked about, um, just important, just, I mean, I think it's important to realise that we are Australian and we're not English and we're not anything else, but we are Australian and we're, we're made 
by the country we live in, and 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 I yep. think it's the flora and fauna that really makes us here in, in absolutely, Australia. yeah, absolutely. It's that resilience, mm. and uh, you know, picking yourself up after some tragedy, and and you see that. And when you look around the world and you see all the horrible things that are happening, mm. you think, oh my heaven, I am so glad I live in Australia, which is probably one of the best countries in the world. Maria, lovely to talk to you. Uh, tell me your Armadale winter. Has it been cold or have it been warmer than usual or have you had a few rippers? Well, we've, we've had some, some big frosts and, uh, and constant frost. It's an early spring here. I mm. think it's an early spring in a lot of places. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, and it's sort of a bit warmer than it should be at this time of the yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but, you know, that's what happens, isn't it? You know, some years it's early, some years it's late. Exactly. But I tell you, the wattles are flowering their heads off this year. It's one of the best seasons I've seen. Yeah, beauty. Well, the picnances have been great. Maria, lovely to talk to you. I've got to fly. Okay, thank you. Good Bye-bye. on you. Bye. This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News, and that's probably Australia's greatest mimic, the lyrebird. This from Rosemary Thompson. She says, Ian, I heard the interesting item on your program last Sunday about the lyrebird calls in the Tasmanian bush. Your caller was correct in saying that lyrebirds did not occur naturally in the island state and were introduced to Tasmania. My father, Dr David Flay, undertook this task at the behest of the Tasmanian government in 1940 after finding that conditions in the National Park's release areas would be ideal for the birds. Naturally, my father had mixed feelings about capturing and transferring lyrebirds from their own well-established haunts to a different state. Firstly, thinking as a naturalist, he thought it was a sacrilege to disturb these elegant songsters' lives. But as a zoologist, he knew that the successful transfer and establishment of lyrebirds in a suitable, fox-free environment meant a gene pool insurance for the future, when a separate colony could prove vital in the ultimate survival of the species. He camped on site near Warburton, Victoria, using his consummate skill as a bushman to track lyrebirds through the dark underscrub of dense fern gullies. The eventual painstaking capture of seven pairs took a long time, but eventually they were freighted across Bass Strait by ANA Airlines, remember ANA, and released both north of Hobart and in the gorges near Launceston. They have established well, and this relocation, as well as his work in capturing and conditioning five pairs of platypuses to Kangaroo Island in 1940, have proven great success stories. David Flay's tribute to the lyrebird was very fitting when he wrote... No feathered creature of the wild is more elegant, accomplished and fascinating to observe or merely listen to than Australia's elusive lyrebird. A magnificent songster in his own right and a prince of mockingbirds, this minstrel is a skilled and artistic vocal copyist of its furred and feathered bush associates, perfect in its mimicry and marvellous in adding volume to the chosen items forming its repertoire. One can be pardoned for the use of superlatives here. They are amply justified. To us it's a treasure and a proud possession bracketed with the platypus and the koala as one of the outstanding three in a distinctive fauna, says Rosemary Thompson, the daughter of Dr David Flay. Rosemary continues, I'm battling here in this hundred-year-old stone house which is in need of repair in parts, but finding builders who'll tackle old-style work is difficult. Getting there slowly and keeping Jack's Highland and Jersey cattle going through the winter has been a challenge. Family help has been vital in the frosty, dry weather. I'm having to buy water for the first time in years, but rain is forecast, so he is hoping. I've nearly completed my book on the Flay Thylacine Expedition of 1945-46. It has proven a big project for me, says Rosemary Thompson. And speaking of dry weather, from our weather correspondent Richard Whittaker, he says the Bureau, Ian, has just confirmed that this year's winter is the warmest on record for Australia, in addition to below average rainfall for much of eastern New South Wales, Victoria and south-east Queensland. 
and pointing to the upcoming bushfire season, Richard says, The last three years for Eastern Australia have been uncharacteristically wet, thanks largely to a triple La Nina that produced record flooding as well as suppressed bushfire dangers. However, we're now seeing a move away from La Nina conditions and in fact a move towards the opposite phase, that of El Nino, characteristically associated with below average rainfall and above average temperatures for Eastern Australia, particularly during the winter spring period. This trend is also being reinforced by sea surface temperature patterns across the Indian Ocean and record warm ocean temperatures globally. But the previous wet weather has left a legacy, that of prolific forest and grass growth that becomes available as fuel for the upcoming spring and summer. All of this raises the potential for a significant bushfire season later this year and into 2024. Scientists will be watching the evolving weather conditions all through the rest of 2023 to see how the rainfall patterns are developing. It will be important for all of us to work on our bushfire plans so that we are well prepared for the upcoming fire season in 2023-24, says Richard Whittaker. And I wouldn't think there would be anybody in Australia now who doesn't know, who doesn't have a bushfire plan. As your grandfather and your great-grandfather would say, you either burn or be burnt. From Peter Allen... Ian, I thought you might be interested in a memorial service at the Anzac Memorial Sydney on September the 7th, marking the 80th anniversary of Australia's worst and least known air disaster that claimed the lives of 73 men, including 60 soldiers of our 2nd 33rd Australian Infantry Battalion, two Australian transport soldiers and 11 US airmen at Port Moresby, September the 7th, 1943. And this is that story. The memorial service on the 7th of September will be held in two parts. The main dedication service to the 73 crash victims with prayers and wreath laying will be in the Hall of Memory, lasting 20 minutes. The second part, lasting 40 minutes, will be in the auditorium with speeches and the playing of the Papua New Guinea, United States of America and Australian national anthems by the Australian Army Band Sydney. The crash is still one of the least known disasters in Australian history and was shrouded in secrecy during World War II on the orders of General Douglas MacArthur and General Sir Thomas Blamey for morale reasons. Soldiers were threatened with court-martial if they talked about it. Not even the families of the men killed were told about it until after the end of the war. It occurred in the early hours of September the 7th, 1943, when a US Army Air Force Liberator bomber carrying four 500-pound bombs and 3,000 gallons of aviation fuel failed in an attempt to take off from Port Moresby's Jackson Airfield, and crashed into a convoy of 18 trucks parked in a holding area at the end of the runway. The convoy was carrying troops of the 2nd 33rd Australian Infantry Battalion, waiting to be taken to a nearby airfield where a fleet of DC-3s was waiting to airlift them over the Owen Stanleys to Nadzab to go into battle to help recapture Lay from the Japanese. There were horrific scenes when the Liberator hit a tree, shearing off a wing, causing fuel in the wing tank to explode. The burning plane then crashed into five trucks in the 18-truck convoy parked at the end of the runway. Two of the Liberator's 500-pound bombs exploded in a huge fireball on impact and the area became a sea of fire from burning aviation fuel. Survivors watched horrified and made heroic attempts to rescue mates on fire as they attempted to escape from the inferno. Many were blown up by their own ammunition, which exploded in the fierce heat. The troops were fully armed, ready to go straight into battle against the Japanese at Nadzab. Every soldier carried 200 rounds of ammunition in bandoliers around their bodies, as well as carrying extra grenades and two-inch mortar bombs in their packs. Ammunition in some of the trucks also exploded when the inferno engulfed them. There was further carnage when a third bomb exploded, killing some of the rescuers. Survivors who witnessed the scenes were haunted by the images for the rest of their lives. The initial crash incinerated or killed 17 soldiers outright. Others died within minutes. Some of the mortally wounded soldiers suffered such horrendous burns that some of the nurses fainted when the men arrived at hospital for treatment. And that email from Peter Robert Allen, and as he says, not many of us even today would know about that disaster. And as we've observed many times before, the training and preparing for war is often just as dangerous as the war itself. And the memorial service at the Anzac Memorial, Sydney, on September the 7th, that's next Thursday. The service will be live-streamed to all states and overseas through the 2nd 33rd Battalion's website, which also has full details about the history of the battalion, one of only three ever formed outside Australia. 
It was formed by men from all states as an emergency battalion to help defend England against a possible German invasion. It later fought against the Vichy French in Syria and with great gallantry against the Japanese on the Kokoda Trail and at Gona, where it suffered heavy losses. It was rebuilt on the Atherton Tablelands to prepare for the assault on Ley. And at that service, on September the 7th at the Anzac Memorial Hyde Park, Sydney, one of the two living survivors of the crash, 99-year-old Leslie Thompson, will be the guest of honour. G'day, Macca. It's Peter here from uh, the Duin Valley, uh, travelling towards Mount Field to have a three-generational walk. I'm the grandfather. I've got my son in the car and I've got my grandson in the car. Macca, happy Father's Day to all the fathers for a start. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Yep. And so you're going on a walk. How long's the walk? Mount, Mount Field, did you say? It is. It's in Tasmania, southwest Macca, and yeah. uh, we're going up to ta- up to Tarn Tarn Shelf. It'll be about a seven-hour walk. Looking forward to it. Is it uh, is it a nice path, or is it a bit rough, or what? Uh, no, it's it's there's a track all the way, but it's just magnificent alpine scenery, Macca, and the day will be perfect. But we've just come through Macca, the uh, the Bridgewater Jerry. Yep. Have you heard about the Bridgewater Jerry? I'd just like to talk about it no, for a while. No, you're going to tell us about it. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Well, I've come up from a beautiful place called White Beach on Tasmania's uh, Tasman Peninsula. But as I approached Hobart, there was a long stretch of fog coming down uh, through Hobart. It snakes down from a place called Bridgewater, which is about 10 kilometres north of Hobart. And uh, it's just a thing of beauty, uh, a magnificent uh, snake of fog. Yeah, well, okay. describe it. Well, okay, it's, uh, well, just a magnificent uh, white fog coming from Bridgewater. Look, uh, there's a bit of mystery about it. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, I'd call it a tourist attraction now, but uh, let me just say a bit of history. Uh, Bridgewater, Bridgewater Jerry, but Jerry, uh, look, there are a lot of uh, interpretations of the word Jerry, but one is that it was thieves slang in London uh, let's say a couple of hundred years ago, for the loot that they used to get, a jerry. That is just one interpretation. But uh, there, there you go, the Bridgewater jerry. Uh, we've just come out of it, Macca, and we're in pristine conditions at the moment. We've got vision. But I tell you what, for about quarter of an hour, 20 minutes, it was just we were immersed in the eye of it, right in the eye of it. I saw it from uh, a beautiful view away from Hobart, say 50 kilometres, but we've come through it and now we're out of it. And it, and it's a regular thing. People talk about the Bridgewater Jerry fog, do they? And it comes what every morning, or during winter, or spring, or what? Every every morning. It's, by the way, it's two degrees Celsius with us at the moment mm. as we head up to Mount Field. Uh, it comes uh, uh, quite a few days through winter, Macca. Macca, the first reference to it, as I understand, was about in 1840. Uh, it wasn't called the Bridgewater Jerry then, but Governor Philip, at that time. Uh, he put a, a reference in a, a local newspaper in 1840 that he couldn't leave a place called Austin's Ferry, which is south of New Norfolk, because of the fog. That was the first reference to what we now call the Bridgewater Jerry. There you go. I'd love to see that sometime. I'd love to see lots of things. I'd love to be at the mouth of the Murray. I'd lo- When you sit here, mate, in the morning and you travel from, you know, the mouth of the Murray down to Bridgewater to all over the place, up to Cairns and... Whittlesea and yeah, phone box in Burke. It's just well, I just my mind just wanders and goes everywhere. That uh, and did you say it's like a snake? This fog you can see it from a distance. Yes, it is like a snake, Macca. I reckon about three or four kilometres wide, but as I say, it's ten kilometres long and it just moves very slowly, Macca. And it's a photographer's delight. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, People probably come from all over the world just to see it. Please come down and see it sometime and have a coffee with us, Macca. All right. We'd love to see you down here. All right, Pete. That'd be great. Uh, enjoy your walk this morning. G'day, Macca. This is Peter Kennedy. How are you? Good, thanks, Peter. I'm uh, calling you from, well, it's 8.30 where I am. I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand, over here on holidays from Camberwell in Melbourne. There oh. you go. And you sound like so, you're outside, Peter. I am. I'm out walking. Um, it looks like it's going to turn into a cracker sort of a day over here. It's, the blue skies are poking through the morning mist. So, uh, great place to be. 
Yeah, you've been there before, obviously, Peter, have you? Yeah, for, for my sins, I'm married to a uh, an all-black supporter, and uh, she brings me home to uh, just apply a little bit more pain from time to time, yes. <laughs> well, there, there you go. So uh, how's things in um, New Zealand? Uh, can you give us a an idea? Uh, it's... I think it's well. I think it's beautiful, and, and and from what I can see, being an outsider looking in, everything's sort of fairly stable and fine over here. Um, I think they're going through similar trials and tribulations to what we are in Australia, with with rising prices and all that. But um, they just get on and. Make it happen, similar to us. Good Aussie or good Anzac spirit, I would say. Yeah, well, we're we're supposed to be. Uh, if we're close to any country in the world, I reckon it would be New Zealand. Although we like to uh, have a go at them, and they have a go at us. But um, I think we've got a lot in common with New Zealand and Australia, don't you? Ah, oh, yeah, but mate, that banter that we have is no different to a brother and a sister or two brothers in a family. Yeah, you know, like. We can have a go at each other, but by jingo, don't have a go at the other one because we'll stand up behind them and you'll be fighting two of us. So uh, <laughs> uh, it's a, it's. I just love the people over here. Um, and the Rugby just, World Cup's on very shortly, isn't it? I think in is that on in France? I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, um, I've been to many a Bledisloe match over here. And I uh, always wear the green and gold. Usually end up wearing a bit of pain because I uh, put on the wallaby jersey. But uh, you've got to wear your colours. Yeah, that must, that must be an experience to watch a, a, a Bledisloe Cup match in, in New Zealand. I'd, uh, I think that'd be a great, uh, great thing to experience. Uh, it's, you've got to do it. It's, it's, uh, it's worth the pain. Well, in more recent years, it's worth the pain of the loss just to see it happen. So, uh, no, it's... it's... Are, they, are, they, are they fairly, you know, complimentary? Are they nice to you if you're wearing a opposition jersey or they give you heaps? Uh, they give you heaps, but they're nice at the same time. Um, uh Many years ago, uh, actually before the earthquake in Christchurch, um, I went to a, a, a match here and ended up in a, um, well, actually it was three days after we got married. So my wife and I and an extended family ended up in a, a rugby bar. And of course I was <laughs> the only person wow. wearing a wallaby jersey. And... They all bought your beer and the commiserations, mate. Um, here, can we help? Oh, they you? did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I, and compliment and you know, I really complimented me on saying, "Well, at least you're wearing your colours. You're standing up for who you support, and if, and they respect that." All right, Ian. What do you do for a living, Ian? No, it's Peter. Peter, I'm sorry. A, uh, um. <laughs> I work for a, uh, a retail uh, group in Australia, uh, part of their IT team, uh, deploying systems across Australia. So. Wow. Well, uh, enjoy your walk this morning. Um, Christchurch is a nice town, it looks like. Oh, it is. A great place to walk because it's flat. <laughs> it's as, literally as flat as a... Flat as your hand. Hat, I was saying. <laughs> no, Danny Carter's hat, mate. So... Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, it's a beautiful place. It's, it's green as well. It's um, lush. It's beautiful. Good on you, Pete. Thanks for your call. Thanks, mate. See ya. See ya. G'day, Macca. It's Brian from Port Elliot here. How are you? Oh, good, thanks, Brian. In South Australia? Yes, that's right. Uh-huh. Just near Victor Harbour. Uh-huh. What's happening, mate? It's well, it's nice and fine here. It's uh, 15 degrees and it's going to be a very warm day for us, about 23, 24 with sunny and northerly winds. Uh-huh. 
And uh, yesterday it was only about 22, but nice and still. And we went down to the Murray mouth, our friend's boat. And um, the what water is... is still gushing out the mouth. And we had a depth sounder with us. And we went out through the mouth, almost to the breakers. And the depth of the Murray mouth at the moment is 35 feet, which is amazing considering it was um, kept open for 20 years by the two barges that are still there, but uh, currently aren't working. Yeah. And the, um, there are lots and lots of seals um, around the entrance. And some of them were uh, surfing on the waves that were coming in. The big breakers are rolling in on the edges of the mouth and curling around the edges. And these little seals, they were really only pups with a couple of older ones there. They're surfing on the, on the waves as they break along the, curving shoreline as it comes into the mouth and running up onto the um onto the uh, onto the sand it was fabulous down there oh it's just, it was just, a, it's just a change of tide so there lots of fishermen there with their um um hooks in the water trying to catch the odd fish but i think most of the seals had already been and taken most of the fish yeah they'd be after mulloway uh the fishermen i suppose and so and the seals would be too because i i remember i spoke to a bloke years ago they were out in their surfboards well he's watching these people out in surfboards out out in the mouth of the murray there and uh, but this was like this is 20 years ago but i was just thinking while you were talking brian before when you said i was just we went down to the mouth of the murray and i thought what a mighty damn thing to do i mean Oh, I just, that would have been just oh, the best thing in the world I would, to to do that, mate. It's a, it's a, well, somebody's going to say today about the iconic, three iconic um, animals in Australia. I think it was the platypus. Um, what was the other ones, Kel? The platypus, the koala, and what was the one we were talking about? It doesn't matter. But the mouth of the Murray and the Murray River itself, it's just, uh, well, it's, so Australia, isn't it? It's just fantastic to be down there, mate. Just oh. how long did you stay down there? Well, we stayed for lunch. We um, <laughs> dropped the uh, dropped the pick on a sandbar um, on the oh, um, on the Coorong side of the of the Murray, and um, there were hundreds of fairy terns um, just within a couple of well, a couple of feet of us, really, on the um, on the sandbar. And before or well, after lunch, we went and zip down the Mundu Channel, which is one of the other entrances that's now blocked with a barrage. But um, somebody on our group uh, had a friend who used to own one of the fishermen's shacks, which is opposite the Mundu Channel. And during the 1940s, the, mother, the Murray Mouth was down there about a kilometre further south than where it is now. Mm. And it's gradually moved towards Goolwa, over the course of the last, um, well, it must be 70 years. But at the moment, it looks like it's carved into the dune with the big flow of the last um, 12 months. It's carved into the dune to the north and perhaps moved, might end up moving another 100 feet towards Goolwa as, as a wash-up of all of that. Can you imagine but, how but, much water's come out of the uh, Murray in the last year or so? How much water's been coming down there? Wow. Well, it's enormous what's come down but i my my ex-wife um has recently been in robinvale last week which is 400 miles further up in northern victoria and the river up there is still flowing at the level of the lock so that instead of dropping five or six meters at robinvale it's full up on each side to the level of the top of the of the uh, boards so there's still a lot more water coming down for the next eight, ten weeks. Wow. That's a great report, Brian. That's the sort of report I love here. I'd love to be in there with you. What a what a great thing to be able to do. I should yeah, should try and get down there. Because the Adelaide show's on started on Saturday. I should get down to the Adelaide show and get someone to take me down the down the Murray down to the Well it's Murray the Mouth. Um, it's the biggest per capita show in uh, in uh, Australia, Macca. More people per capita in the state go to the show than uh, any other um, agricultural and horticultural show in Australia. So uh, it's very, very popular in Adelaide. Yeah. It's sort of got that feel of a real country show. Um, yeah. I've been, I've been before. I'm going to try and get there. I'm going to try and get there this week. I'll, I'll have a think about it We'd this morning. We'd love to have you, Macca. 
Good on you, Brian. Keep in touch, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. I'll tell you why I live where I live. And how you grow up and where you live, I suppose, as an adult, is really determined by what your parents did in some ways as a kid. Your father might have been a policeman, so you travelled around, went to five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten schools. Your dad might have owned a cake shop, like your lun's dad, so you grew up in a cake shop. My God, wouldn't... Or they might have owned a pub. And a writer, Max Beck, says, I want to explain why I lived where I lived as a boy and a teenager in Bendigo, Victoria, during the 50s and 60s. In 1949, when Australia's rabbit plague reached its peak, my father purchased the Crown Hotel in Bendigo. I was four years old when he took possession of the business and freehold that was to be the setting of my unusual life as a child and teenagers. Before motels existed, the Crown was a quality hotel and our guests included Supreme Court and county judges, deputy prime ministers and state premiers. One morning I got into serious trouble when I yelled out a warning to my mother, Mum, the bloody old judge is coming down the stairs, which was clearly heard by his honour. The first thing my father did when he bought the Crown was rip out the old beer pipes coming from the cellar to the bar as they were made of lead. Until then, patrons must have been getting a dose of lead poisoning. Even low levels of lead can cause brain and kidney damage. My father, Reg, was a professionally taught violinist and during the era of silent movies had been employed as lead violinist in an orchestra pit of a Melbourne picture theatre. An entertainer at heart, he built a small stage in the dining room which seated 60 diners and ran concerts on special days such as Christmas, Easter, Cup Days... Concerts typically consisted of my father as master of ceremonies and violin player, a piano player and a squeeze box or concertina player by the name of Mac McQueen who could also sing and drink a glass of beer while standing upside down. But not at the same time. My father's signature performance was playing the bagpipes on his violin. Above all else, he was a showman and after a few drinks he was liable to claim that he could play the minute waltz in 52 seconds. My education at Gravel Hill State School introduced me to official government-sponsored corporal punishment. Every teacher was equipped with a strap as a standard issue. Our grade three teacher, Miss Fraser, was prone to use hers, which she called Charlie, rather frequently. One lunchtime, two kids with more courage than me sneaked in, kidnapped Charlie, who was taken to the wood heap, chopped up with an axe, and his dismembered body disposed of in secret. His demise coincided with that of another tyrant, Joseph Stalin, who died around the same time. As I advanced my teenage years, I started pushing my boundaries by sneaking out of the hotel at night. After saying I was going to bed and locking the door from inside the room, I would then exit through my second-storey bedroom window and shimmy down a cast-iron sewerage pipe to the ground. Equipped with a packet of cigarettes, I would venture forth into the night in search of my identity, which I usually found at Reshter's American Cafe, where, with a shilling in the slot of the jukebox, I had the musical world of pop. At my fingertips. As I got older, I would sometimes borrow my father's 1949 straight eight Packard in the middle of the night, which I eventually proved could do 120 k's an hour in second gear, so long as it was in a straight line. I was fortunate to be brought up in the environment of the Crown Hotel. It was like living in my own personal lunar park. I think I had more freedom than any other kid in Bendigo. I was lucky to avoid getting into serious trouble but gained valuable experience in weighing up risks and making my own decisions as to where the limits were. In the end, my upbringing there in the 50s and 60s, my education in Bendigo and everything else in my life somehow became relevant to everything before me when sitting on the bench as a magistrate. I'm glad that I lived where I lived, says Max Beck. And Max has written a book about that time in Bendigo and the Crown and it's called Around the Bend I Go. After living in Ley in Papua New Guinea from 1976 to 1982, says Leonie Tuckett, we came back to Australia, Sydney in particular, to settle in the Shire. My husband worked at the airport, so we felt that the Shire was the best place to be. Cronulla, Caringbar, Miranda maybe. We had two weeks to find something. Looked at many houses. Nothing had what I call the feel. Just by chance, we walked into a real estate office in Caringbar and a lovely lady said... We have this place which has just come onto the market in Sylvania. Not being a Sydneyite, having moved over from Perth when I married, I had no idea where Sylvania was. I don't think my husband had much of an idea either, or he didn't have a lot of knowledge about what Sylvania was like. We got in the car and drove to this stunning area overlooking Oyster Bay and Carilla Golf Course. Looked up the hill and there sat a small weatherboard home built into the hill. Windows and a balcony right along the front. Well, we fell in love before we walked into the house. 
The house inside was small but neat and tidy and suited us completely, but it was a little over our budget. Anyway, we bought the house and brought up our children from the age of seven and eight to fourteen and fifteen. It was so beautiful, quiet, plenty of trees, fantastic neighbours, and the view was to die for. Every day I would walk out on the balcony and appreciate living where we lived at a very important time of our children's lives. Unfortunately, due to circumstances, we sold in 1992. One of my biggest regrets. I listen every Sunday and have for years and years. Love it, says Leonie Tuckett. And finally, for the thousands and thousands of men and women who fly in and fly out, this is from Andy Tipping. He says, Hey, Mac, a long-time lurker, first-time poster. I've been working FIFO for a couple of years, and lately it seems I've discovered my inner, long-hidden poet. I wrote this a few days before I headed home on the last swing, and I thought I'd send it through, says Tippo from Rutherford, New South Wales. It's called Home Soon. I've been three weeks away and I'll be heading home real soon. Been working Monday through Saturday and finished Sunday right on noon. Three weeks of early starts and up at 4am I get a magic seven days at home before I start again. But that week at home with loved ones makes everything all right. From the pain of separation in a single bed at night, the dinners and the sleep-ins and the catching up with mates, the simple things like cooking food and cleaning up the plates the chance to converse with the wife about troubles, kids and bills. Back on my home ground again, we'll settle all our ills. There's a deeper understanding now that we together share. We're battling together, but we're both still quite the pair. My thoughts keep coalescing to our future down the line, but we know that we'll get there. Thank you. We will be just fine. Because three weeks work away again, we'll bring more money in, and I'm at Sydney Airport to catch that flight. Ian's in Lismore. Morning, Ian. Uh, morning, Maka. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. That's good. I'll give you a quick weather report. It's mm. um, a bit of bit of broken cloud, highish cloud, a bit of blue sky poking through. So it's uh, I don't know. Probably it's probably about eighteen, nineteen degrees. It's it's quite nice at, at the moment. So uh, just kicking into another day. And Ian, you work with fire and rescue. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm actually at work now, so if you hear um, a sound in the background, it could be a fire call and I've got to, got to cut short. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, yeah, just here, I've uh, been here for a number of years, so it's, uh, it's a good place to work. I'll say, so but, what's happening yeah. in the fire and rescue business? Oh, actually, we have been, we've been quite busy lately. We had uh, the old police station burned down uh, a week and a half ago and then a coal loader at Casino went up. I that saw that. Like a, a, yeah, thirty meter, thirty meter uh, wooden structure that took a fair bit of uh, bit of an effort to extinguish. Did that yeah, have so a, we, Did that have a sort of heritage value? That coal loader. I'm sure it did. I think it was about 100 years old, but just like the old police station, actually. So yeah, there's definitely heritage value there. Yeah, without a doubt. Mm. But um, actually, what I'm ringing you about is not fire brigade related. It's um, about Jimmy Buffett um, passing. Um, I don't know how big he was in Australia, but um, he was absolutely massive within the uh, the sailing fraternity, uh, people cruising the world in their own yachts or even professional crews uh, sailing boats around the world. And that, that's where I sort of first heard his music back in 1987. And uh, he's just been been a, a stalwart of uh, the people with a sort of bit of an alternative look on life ever since... Uh, I, we played his song "Come Monday." That was our wedding, our bridal waltz at my wedding for my wife. So, um, yeah, he's a great musician, and I was fortunate to see him in Sydney in in 1988, and then uh, in Paris for his first ever Paris concert in a little little uh, concert hall that held 200 people, and it was just just a great night. Yeah. And he came to Australia, didn't he? Uh, sometime and he fell off the stage, and he, he did a he, he, did. he did a Marlena Dietrich. Didn't she? Did yeah, the, yeah. She did the same did she, thing. Did she really? I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I, I tried to get tickets to that concert, but we uh, we missed out. But uh, I'd seen him earlier at the uh, the Sydney Entertainment Centre in 1988. But uh, yeah, just just a great great fellow who did a lot for, for veterans over in um, in the, in the states. Yeah. And uh, yeah, was a, was a true blue guy, you know. Heading out to San Francisco. We used to do this song. For the yeah. Labor Day weekend, weekend show, I 
got my hush puppies on. Is that an ad? And if I yeah. never was back for glitter, rock and, rock and roll. And honey, I didn't know that I'd be missing you so come under. Yeah, etc., etc. We used to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful lots, song. Lots of lovely songs. We'll play it for you in a minute, Ian. So, um, yes, yeah, he did. He fell off the stage. I think he broke his leg. Um, I'm not sure. But, yes, he... he Songs like um, A Pirate Looks at 40 and, um, yeah. and, and um, It's My Job, my, another great song. It's my job yeah, It's my job to be sitting here every Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> my my favourite was uh, Changes in Latitude, Changes oh, in Latitude. Oh, what a, what a my, good song. My um, favourite one, yeah, yeah. Wait, how's it going? Well, um, do, do, do. Yeah. No, it's not right. Key. It doesn't matter. Anyway, it's a long time since I've played it, but they're great songs. I'll review. I've got, uh, a, yeah. I've got an album of his called You Had to Be There, uh, which is sort of a live thing, you know, meaning you had to be there. It's nothing yeah. like being there at a live concert. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, anyway, it's a very sad day he's passing, and I didn't even realise he was sick, actually. That, that, that didn't get broadcast at all. So uh, he's a big loss to a, uh, to a big community around the world. And, of course, they call his, his followers uh, parrot heads. That's right, yes. It yeah, goes up. Yeah. I took off for a weekend last month just to try and recall the whole year. Remember that one? That's yeah, it, yeah, I sure do. Yeah, no, yeah we, we used to do a lot of Jimmy Buffett. A lot of Jimmy Buffett. Ian, so um, Fire and Rescue, you're looking forward, I don't know if that's the right word, to a big uh, summer season this year. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of uh, getting talked up a bit about uh, the main issues going to be grass fires. We've been to a few already. Mm. Um, yeah, so you know, can just put out a fire safety message there that that uh, be careful with your cigarettes and any, any fires that you do light. Um, <clears throat> just be responsible. Exactly. Um, there's no reason why people in Australia now shouldn't know how to deal with fire. It's been part of our life forever, and same with floods. Yep. So, you know, if you're going to live, you know, either burn or be burnt, that's what your grandfather would say when you're living in the bush. And, and yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the story, and that's the best way to avoid heartache, isn't it, Ian? Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right, uh, Mac. It's, um, it's, you know, fires that get away, you can call them accidents, but we know, as you say, we know enough about fires these days that, that accidents shouldn't happen, so... Yeah. <clears throat> Good on you, Ian. This is for you, mate. Thanks, Becca. Good on you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.